Welcome to the new Innovation Matters podcast series of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. Innovation Matters aims to engage leading experts on a range of topics to explore how innovation could drive sustainable development in Eurasia and beyond. Our episodes explore ongoing trends, opportunities and challenges, such as the fourth industrial revolution, the sharing economy, the circular economy, autonomous vehicles and digitization. Today we have the first of two episodes on regulation and innovation. The first one will be on regulating innovation, what we can learn from the past. And our guest today is Adam Thierer, a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And this first part is going to look at the distant and recent past of innovation, where our guest will argue that most innovation we benefit from today has in fact been what he calls permissionless innovation in one way or other. Adam Thierer, welcome to Innovation Matters. Thanks for having me. So in the first part, what is permissionless innovation? Let's start with a little bit about your background. And you've written a lot about this topic. It's it's very central in your writing. What motivates you and uh, why do you find it so important and so urgent? Well, thank you for having me on, on the show. I I spent 30 years covering the intersection of emerging technology and public policy, trying to identify what the major fault lines were that drove opposition to technological change and economic progress. And in doing that over the course of three decades, I found an enormous amount of commonality in terms of what motivated that sort of opposition, regardless of what the technology was in question. And so 30 years ago, I was doing a very different issue set because it was the pre-internet days and uh, people were opposing other types of technological change. But it doesn't make a difference if it's the old analog era or the new digital era. There are some common themes or sort of what I call a conflict of philosophical visions over how to govern the future. Well, thank you. First, let's talk about what you mean by permissionless innovation. We had an episode with Mike Munger, who at one point said it's the most important concept in political economy after transactions costs. Could you explain a little bit what it means and maybe give an example or two and maybe explain a little bit why it may sometimes come across as controversial? Sure. So permissionless innovation generally refers to the general freedom to experiment and learn through trial and error. It represents an openness to change, to disruption, and to risk-taking. And under a policy environment that is driven by a permissionless innovation vision or ethos, policy would generally avoid prior restraints on innovation and entrepreneurialism. It would give entrepreneurs more green lights than red stoplights. And innovation under permissionless innovation model is generally treated as innocent until proven guilty. We wait and see what sort of problems would develop and then determine what the best solutions might be after allowing that trial and error process to happen. Now, to put myself in the shoes of uh, others who disagree with that approach or criticize it, the leading critique of permissionless innovation is that, well, sometimes we just can't tolerate trial and error that we don't want to see any error or failure in society. We don't want to take any risks. And sometimes they're right. Sometimes there are some risks that are quite significant and deserve a different approach to policy or regulation. 
But for the most part, most risks aren't that way. Most technological risks, we can take a more permissive approach and allow for experiments to happen and see how things shake out and take more of an ex post approach to policy where we do potentially look to have some curbs on innovation, but we first wait to see which ones are needed. We don't attempt to gauge into a crystal ball and say, well, we know everything that could go wrong with a new technology and then preemptively set forth a course of action to regulate it as such, which is why the the key takeaway of my book and all of my work in this field comes down to this single line, which is that if you spend all of your time uh, worrying about hypothetical worst case scenarios, and then you make hypothetical worst case scenarios the basis of public policy, it means that a great many best case scenarios will never ever come about. That it's only through the trial and error process and learning from our failures that we as humanity achieve progress, that we get more prosperity. But we have to allow for a certain amount of disruption and risk taking to take place or else we'll never have that sort of prosperity. Yeah, we'll talk about some of these examples later. I think the other thing that comes to mind is the proportionality between our willingness to accept risk when it comes to, for instance, airport security compared to road safety. If you look at the figures, there's an enormous difference. And we never had a discussion about that. Same thing with COVID restrictions. Of course, there we have much less data to rely on. But just to go back a little bit to the basics, uh, you talk about two kinds of permission, license and permission from competitors. Could you just explain what kind of permission you are talking about in terms of regulation and licensing and sometimes also permission from competitors and why that is harmful? When I talk about permissionless innovation, I'm specifically talking about the policy debate around how we govern through regulation new innovative and entrepreneurial activities. I'm not speaking about the permissions that are the form of market transactions in the form of, say, contracts or intellectual property or other types of property law. There are certainly permissions that we deal with every single day of our lives in the marketplace that are perfectly fine and well. The question is, is what sort of permissions in the form of prior restraints on innovative activities are imposed by governments through either some sort of a licensing or other type of permitting regime. That's what I'm primarily concerned with. And what I try to do in my work, and specifically in my book on permissionless innovation, is identify the potential costs associated with taking the opposite approach to innovation, which is the so-called precautionary principle, and identify the potential cost of that sort of restriction on innovative activity. Excellent. So let's uh, pass to part two on this conflict of visions and the growing role of the, the precautionary principles. Uh, just first, if you don't mind, if you could uh, give us a few um, illustrating examples from history of permissionless innovation and, of course, the stymieing effect of, of the precautionary principles. And maybe some examples of that is playing out today. You talk about some unintentional consequences of EPA rules and uh, a few other examples. So first, let's define what we mean by the precautionary principle. It's probably more well known than the idea of permissionless innovation because the precautionary principle emanates from the field of food and drug regulation and environmental sciences, where it has been the 
primary governance approach for, I would say, the last 50 years in those fields. What the precautionary principle refers to, although definitions do vary, is the idea that we should craft public policy in such a way as to control or limit new innovations until their creators can prove that those innovations won't cause any theoretical harms. So a precautionary principle approach is an ex-ante approach as opposed to an ex-post approach to regulation of innovation. It essentially imposes more red lights in front of entrepreneurs and innovators instead of giving them the green ones of permissionless innovation. So the key to the precautionary principle is preemptive prior restraints on innovative activities such that innovation is basically guilty until proven innocent. And you, as an innovator, must seek the blessing of someone in government, probably at a regulatory agency, before you're allowed to do any sort of innovative activities. So what are some examples of both permissionless innovation and the cautionary principle in practice in certain key sectors? Well, let's talk about permissionless innovation sectors first. We have never had in America or Europe a full-blown regulatory regime for computing or for consumer electronics. It's been fields that have been largely developed using more of a permissionless model, although more recently the European Union has acted to move in the direction of more regulation of data-driven sectors. Traditionally, computing and consumer electronics have been more of a permissionless-oriented environment. By contrast, we can look at traditional communication sectors. Uh, traditional information and communication sectors like broadcasting or telephony, very, very heavily preemptively regulated and controlled under a precautionary approach for a variety of reasons. So you have this really interesting tension at work in the modern world of communications information technology policy, which is that you have some technologies or sectors that are essentially born into regulatory captivity, if you will. And then you have others that are born free. You have some sectors and technologies like robotics and artificial intelligence that came along under more of the computer and consumer electronics model of permissionless innovation. We do not have a federal robotics commission or a federal artificial intelligence commission. We may soon get one in the European Union, but the bottom line is they're more of a permissionless sort of model. By contrast, things that look more like broadcasting and telephony have been regulated pretty aggressively. And there's that tension between these two models because we live in a world of technological convergence. And all of these technologies and systems are coming together. And so we have to confront the new governance challenges associated with what happens when old and new technologies and old and new governance visions collide, because that's happening right now in front of us. I wanted to explore a little bit um, what has happened historically, because historically, if you look at innovation in the 19th century, that was mostly permissionless innovation. Regulation started a little bit in a progressive era, but still, in the 1930s, you could buy cough medicine from Dr. Heroin for children, which, of course, worked fine. But that's where heroin comes from. That's how permissionless we were. Um, now you write in your book that regulation based on precautionary principle has gone far beyond uh, foods and drugs, uh, where it might make sense in some circumstances. 
And uh, grown also into product regulation, and you mentioned that 68% of federal regulation has never been updated. Why is this? We here come across several examples where there are rules on the book that simply don't make sense. Could you talk a little bit about that and maybe a few examples from your side? I'd be happy to because this has been a focus of a lot of my work over the last 30 years, which is that we have the problem of what's often called regulatory lock-in where we get a new policy or program or agency in place, and then we treat policy as what some people call set it and forget it. Just sort of put it in place, fix it in stone, and then it never really changes, even though the world and technology changes so radically. In many ways, we still have laws on the books and regulations, both in the United States and Europe, that are firmly fixed in the era of dial-up telephony, where we were using a finger on a rotary phone to make a phone call. We still have all those regulations on the books, even though that's not the way any of us make phone calls anymore. We still have broadcast era regulations uh, for media, even though most people don't watch over-the-air broadcast television anymore. We get our video in different ways. So law, once it's set in place, and especially in a form of very technocratic regulations, it tends to be very stodgy, very static. It doesn't really evolve. And that defies common sense. What I've argued in my work is that we need to consider how we might be able to refresh public policy on a regular basis, especially for fast-moving technologies and sectors. This is a really, really crucial problem, not just in America, but I think across the world, including in Europe, because the institutional inertia is such that once these policies get on the book, there are special interests that defend these rules and regulations and use them to block new forms of innovation or competition. So I've argued that if technology is evolving at the pace of so-called Moore's Law, Moore's Law is the principle that semiconductor power memory doubles every like 18 months to two years and prices tend to fall at the same time. Innovation is happening at that pace in the modern world, in information technology in particular. Companies and innovators are expected to reinvent themselves every couple of years and come up with new and better ways of doing things. But governments are never expected to do that, and they're never required to change their business models. So we need to have fresh thinking about how we govern modern technologies, starting with the idea that we should do an occasional so-called spring cleaning, clean up the old systems. How about regular sunsets? How about a way of sunsetting laws on a regular timetable? Things like that. But we have to do this because if not, public policy will become not only outdated and archaic, but it will become irrelevant. The biggest problem here is that we can't get good governance when we do need it, because there are times when we do need laws and regulations. But if we're so stuck enforcing yesterday's broken models, we can never really get around to having sensible ones for the I'm I'm wondering a little bit about why we don't take these laws off the book, because some of them are completely are ridiculous. No reasonable person would agree with them. Does it have to do with the incentives that policymakers face? Does it have to do with the entrenched interests and the tendency for regulations to, to favor incumbents? And then in contrast to that, you talk about several examples, and we also talk with Arthur Diamond about, about several examples where We've gotten around rules through history, uh, such as FedEx. Maybe you could talk a little bit about both sides of that. There's many reasons why we don't see old laws and policies removed or reformed. 
from the books. One is the rather unfortunate reality that, as I already mentioned, there are certain special interests that often form, corporate or otherwise, to defend certain types of laws or regulations because they benefit from them. We see this, for example, in the field of ride sharing with regards to the incredible opposition we've seen to things like Uber and Lyft and other ride sharing services as an alternative competitor for traditional taxi and limo services. I'm not saying Uber and Lyft are perfect, but they are a choice. They are an alternative. And for the better part of about 60 or 70 years, economists made an argument for why existing taxi and limo regulations were inefficient and only served certain special interests, maybe namely large taxi and limo companies. And so the problem is, is that that was never going to change so long as those companies had the ear of regulators or taxi cab and limo commissions. They were controlling the process. It took technological disruption to completely upend that model. Those rules had to be changed, but they didn't get changed, even though all of the economic reasoning was saying they should be changed. And I think this is what's happening throughout our economy today. We're seeing crusty old rules and regulations challenged by new emerging technologies that won't change either because of special interest influence or because in some cases, the law and the body of rules that we have in a certain area is so voluminous, so massive, that even the lawmakers and regulators themselves don't really have a full grasp of everything that's out there. There's just so much. You mentioned a statistic that I've cited in my work. Uh, in the United States, uh, roughly 68% of all of our rules in the Code of Federal Regulations have never been revisited. And on, I think it's like 86% of all the rules in the U.S. Code of Regulations have either never been revisited or only revisited once. So that means Almost 90% of rules that were put in place decades ago, maybe over 100 years ago, have never been touched or only touched, just tweaked once. Does that make any sense? It can't make any sense. We, we would never allow this to happen for a business or even for your own household. We would expect ourselves and our processes to change to accommodate new realities. But our governance mechanisms for technology and for a whole host of other sectors, frankly, just don't change. Technology forces the change and sometimes evades the laws, goes around them in order to get things done. So that's the world we live in today because the law won't change, unfortunately. And it's also interesting to look at the examples where it does change and where it doesn't change. I'd just like to pass to, to the third part about the importance of constraints, permissionless innovation. You talk about two visions of dynamism and stasis and the fact that doomsayers prevail. At the same time, you talk about innovation standing for as much as 90% of growth for 200 years. Why are we so pessimistic? Everything has become so much better even in our lifetime and especially for the least fortunate of this world. Why are we so concerned? Well, that's a wonderful question, and it's something I've spent a lot of time writing about. And just recently, in fact, I wrote an essay about how our public imagination and policy dialogues surrounding many emerging technologies, especially AI and robotics, is driven by science fiction dystopianism and a lot of bad news uh, headlines. I think it's the case that, unfortunately, bad news sells. Bad news creates a lot of attention. 
if you're dystopian and you tell a, a bad news story, you tend to get more attention, whether you're doing it in the context of science fiction and movies and television, or if you're doing it in the field of journalism, writing headlines about, you know, the end times are coming. And a lot of social scientists and media observers have noted that good news always gets pushed further and further back in media reports. Um, it, it's, it's buried by other headlines that are front and center about misery. And this is simply because bad news sells. It sells both newspapers and blog posts, and it sells movie tickets and television ratings. And so it's an enormously difficult challenge to tell the good news story about technology because that story is a long-term story and a gradual incremental one that's happened through the ages. This steady improvement in humanity's ability to live longer and better lives. It's a compelling story backed by solid evidence and economics. And yet, again, it's this gradual historic one versus the short-term bad news story of like, oh, my gosh, look what happened here or look what could happen here, hypothetically. So this is not an easy problem to solve. It's become such a problem that some authors, I don't know if you know the, the science fiction author uh, Neil Stevenson, who's a wonderful author, but he actually partnered with a university to try to fund short stories about science fiction of a positive persuasion. He said, I'm sick and tired of all the dystopianism in science fiction and modern writing. And he created a program with a university pro, uh, center to basically try to provide grants to fiction writers to say, can you tell a good news story about technology? Because there are none in modern plots. And I think that's really sad that it takes that sort of an effort. But the reality is, we're, I think we're always going to be confronted with this. And all we can do is present the facts again and again and hope people understand this. And then also explain the opportunity costs of giving up what we have. When I'm lecturing to crowds, I often say, you know, for if you think technology is as evil as some of these professors say or some of these newspaper people say or sci-fi authors, are you all willing to surrender your, your iPhones, your smartphones today? Are you willing to give up your computers? Are you willing to, you know, put your all your technologies in your life and in your home uh, in the garbage can? Uh, I don't think anybody wants to take them up on that. Uh, that. That's not something that's very popular. So people do understand there are benefits. But the problem is, is that it's much easier to be a pessimist than it is to be an optimist about the future. And this is just something that's always going to be with us. Yeah, definitely. Unfortunately, yes. And we also had recently an episode with Stephen Kotler who talks about Moore's Law multiplied by convergence of different technologies, creating what Jay Kurzweil called the law of accelerating returns, even going as far as to say that in the next decades we might see as much change as we have seen in the past 100 years. Yeah, I'd like to say just one thing on that point because I think it's very important uh, what your previous guest said. That guest was probably referring to what is often called combinatorial innovation. We live in a world of combinatorial innovation and parallel technological breakthroughs where we are witnessing multiple technologies building on top of one another in a very powerful fashion. So, for example, the artificial intelligence and robotics and machine learning revolution that's about to unfold before us, which is already unfolding, 
is really building on the previous revolution in information technology and the Internet. And that built upon the computing revolution and so on and so forth. This didn't happen in the past. We, we had technologies combining, but it took far, far longer for agricultural and industrial technologies and other technologies to work together. Today, these things happen very, very fast. So fast, in fact, some people refer to the so-called pacing problem uh, of governance, of just the fact that it's very, very hard for governments and regulation to keep up with the pace of technological change in a world of combinatorial innovation and parallel technological breakthroughs. So this is why I'm optimistic about the future more than anything else, because when laws fail to keep pace, it does challenge those technologies. But sometimes technologies find a way. Innovation finds a way. It's not to say it has a complete life of its own or it's an autonomous force. It's just to say that it's very, very hard to bottle up everything that you don't like in this world as a regulator or a critic. Some of these things do get through. Because at the end of the day, people want them. They know that they benefit their lives and that they give them new choices and options and benefits that they did not have before. And so they seize upon that, even when the law is somehow standing in the way of it. Sometimes the law will stop it altogether. Other times, the law has to accommodate, as it did with things like ride sharing. As you pointed out, there's been some opposition to Uber and Lyft, and I understand some of it, but we're certainly better off for having those choices. And we certainly saw the need for more alternatives when those technologies came along and people seized upon them. So we would hope that policymakers and regulators would learn some lessons from that about the need to be accommodating and humble in the face of uncertainty and not impose a precautionary principle approach but offer more freedom until such time as we need to bring in more law than we already have. Thank you, Adam. Um, I think there's definitely a willingness to do this when we talk to our member states. There's a lot of talk about concepts like flexible regulation and agile governance. There's even something called the EU innovation principle, which reads uh, very liberal. But it's also about some public concerns that might be overblown. It's about the knowledge problem, and it's about the political incentives. Yeah, this is an important point you're making here, because I think many officials in Europe understand that it's important to have a base of homegrown talent and innovative companies and sectors. And they talk the talk in terms of talking about the innovation principle, talking about the importance of experimentation, Agile governance. These phrases are very, very hot right now. People are all using the same language. The problem is you have to do more than talk the talk. You have to walk the walk. You have to actually follow through on those principles. And what I see coming out of the European Union for a lot of emerging technology sectors is a continuation of and really a great expansion of a more precautionary principle mindset based upon worst case dystopian thinking about future technologies. So if you really mean it when you say agile governance and you really want the innovation principle to be the basis of, you know, uh, your future, you have to follow through. I mean, the governments of Europe, they have to back it up with something and they can't be adding to the problem. I mean, I, I hate to say this to a European audience, but one of the things I do at all of my lectures, wherever I go in the world, is I ask people like in the world of information technology, can you name for me some leading European-based information technology providers? 
and many of them really, really struggle. They name companies that are very old or that have been bought by American companies or moved out of Europe. It's not that Europe lacks talent or venture capital or, or good people. You know, it, there's all the great institutions there. There's amazing universities. Europe should be right on the cutting edge of things like artificial intelligence and robotics. But here comes the European Union with yet another layer of new rules for all of these technologies based upon a precautionary principle-based approach. That's not going to give us agile governance. That's not going to give us policy flexibility to accommodate the next generation of talented entrepreneurs and innovators that could make Europe a stronghold for those sectors. I think once again, you're going to see a lot of the best innovators and investors leave Europe because of this, just as they did in the Internet age, when they just couldn't get a fair shake from the European Union regulators when it comes to data regulation. But it's important that people understand the real world ramification of this battle of this conflict divisions that I've described, because precautionary principle based policy has real world costs and consequences for countries and institutions and individuals. Thank you, Adam, for that. So uh, you have five main messages. Uh, One is that if public policy is guided by fear and a precautionary mindset, innovation becomes less likely. Maybe a few words about that. Right. If we continue to use hypothetical worst-case scenarios as the basis of public policy, then we are just far less likely to get good news stories coming out of our economy. We're, We're not likely to get the innovation we want if we are, by default, discouraging innovation. It's really quite simple. I mean, if you fear the future, then you're going to get less of the future. <laughs> and, and so it's very, very important that public policy send the right signals to achieve what many economic historians like Joel McCurr and others refer to as a positive innovation culture or a positive innovation ecosystem. You have to think about innovation as almost like a fragile plant that requires the right kind of soil and ecosystem to grow in. And it begins with positive signals and positive nurturing. And that requires a different approach to the governance of emerging technology. If I've come to believe in one overarching principle from all of my studies of innovation, it's that trial and error is everything. That it's through that process of of constant iteration and experimentation that we learn, that we figure out how to do things better. And we often forget the error part of trial and error. We talk about it, but we don't think about it. When we make mistakes, it's not the end of the story. It's the beginning of a new story. Thomas Edison had a famous quote when he was alive. Uh, He was ridiculed by some journalists for all of his failed experiments to make a light bulb. And there had been hypothetically something like 10,000 failed experiments. And he basically pointed out to the journalist who was challenging him on this, like, I haven't failed 10,000 times. I've learned all the ways that don't work. And now I'm about to figure out the one that does. And he did it. And that was the key to lighting up the world. And it came through a lot of failure, a lot of error in trial and error. We can't shortcut that process. We can't imagine that we can figure that out without doing it. Trial and error is is a process. And it's not one that can be imagined. And you can't stare into a crystal ball and predict what future failure looks like. It's often things you can't imagine. So... I would just say as an overarching policy recommendation, my number one is always to all policymakers, understand the enormous power and importance 
of trial and error experimentation to the future of human prosperity and progress. Yes, indeed. I think uh, wasn't it? Uh, he said uh, I didn't. I didn't fail at all. I succeeded in showing four thousand ways that didn't work. That sort of sums it up. The next one is something we didn't talk about, but that you talk about in your book. It's basically that rules and licensing are not the only way of uh, restraining or channeling behavior. We have all kinds of social norms and informal rules that we talked about also in previous podcasts. So you say not all principles and social norms and so on automatically makes wise policy guidance. If you could elucidate that a little bit. Well, obviously, there are many ways to govern in general versus just regulating. When we regulate through public policy, that's one way to govern. But we need to think about the term governance more broadly because Human action is governed by many, many different forces, including powerful social norms or other types of societal attitudes. It can also be governed by, as I described earlier, more ex post types of remedies. We can utilize the courts to address problems or cases and controversies as they develop. We can utilize torts. We can utilize class action lawsuits, consumer protection actions various other types of decentralized governance approaches. And so we need to be careful about jumping to taking what looks like a good principle or a norm and immediately making it a preemptive precautionary prior restraint on human innovation and creativity. And so, for example, I believe that there are very legitimate concerns about privacy on social media sites. I However, also believe that there are many ways to deal with those in a more decentralized fashion, sometimes through a combination of norms, consumer education, best practices, codes of conduct, uh, industry professional associations setting certain terms and services and norms for their members. These are all alternative approaches to a command and control top-down regulatory regime that is simply too punishing in its effect too comprehensive and costly, such that it is the core problem that has driven so many innovators to stop innovating in this sector because of regulations, mostly coming out of Europe. So that's why that's so important. Yeah, I think another way of of sort of explaining it is that if I think of myself, the reason I don't put my feet up when I'm in the train It's not because it's illegal. I don't even know if it's illegal, but because there will inevitably be a 60-year-old woman. They're the ones that are, you know, keeping the, enforcing the rules, yelling at me. And I would be ashamed and it would be, it would be my fault. But I would also mention the value of brand names. When Nike and other textile producers uh, had someone in their supply chain that mistreated their workers, there will be vigilant NGOs there that will make sure that they behave right. And after all, Google, Google's motto is don't be evil. There's only yeah. so much evil they can do without. This is an interesting point. Yeah. I've written extensively in the past about the importance of reputational effects in curbing market behaviors that we don't want. And you mentioned Google, and it's one of the most powerful examples of the power of social norms. People forget that a decade ago, Google launched its Google Glass product, the wearable glasses that could record in public. It created an immediate public uproar. And it created even hostility. Some people were getting punched for wearing Google Glasses in public. And I wouldn't recommend that to anybody, but it was an interesting pushback to technology, right? And the pushback was so enormous from society that eventually Google Glasses were banned in all sorts of establishments by the establishments, not by law. 
And then it just became very passe or very hostile to people to think that you would wear these things while in a restaurant or anywhere else. And so Google just got rid of the product. I mean, it's now still available, but only for commercial uses in like factories or warehouses. They don't sell it as a consumer facing product anymore. That is the power of social norms to push back at the margin. Yeah, I think the most important point for me is that the reason that I follow these norms is not that I'm afraid of getting a fine. It's because I want to follow social norm, or at least most of the time. Then the next summary that you have is that the best solutions are organic and bottom-up. We talked a little bit about this, but maybe you can apply that to a specific example where we maybe did it the other way around than we should. Absolutely. Well, I spend a lot of my time in my work talking about the importance of bottom-up governance and what I call soft law. Soft law is basically the opposite of hard law. It's all of the things, including the norms and other things we just discussed, but it includes things like best practices, industry self-regulation, educational efforts, transparency requirements, um, codes of conduct, even new competition, uh, so on and so forth. These are all bottom-up mechanisms of trying to address societal concerns. And so we can utilize a different toolkit that builds on the best of what the precautionary principle crowd wants, which is like some way to address safety or security or privacy concerns. We can find a different toolkit to do that. We can utilize a a more decentralized approach that doesn't require prior restraint, but utilizes other mechanisms first. And I think that that's something we need to take advantage of. And a lot of governments are. Again, if for no other reason than the pacing problem requires it, the fact that technology is just evolving so fast means that some sort of change is necessary to come at this from a more of a bottom-up organic kind of process of saying, okay, let's just take on this pragmatically as opposed to trying to say we're going to try to touch and regulate every single problem that could go wrong in the future preemptively. That's just not possible, and it's extremely costly if you try it. So the final one for technology policy and transformative innovation policy, permissionless innovation should trump the precautionary principle approach. Could you explain briefly why? Yeah, as I've already noted, um, it's important that we give innovators and entrepreneurs more green lights than red ones if we hope to see what the creativity of the human mind can yield. The only way we can unlock the potential of a people and a country and a culture and a continent is to allow for individuals to engage in trial and error experimentation. Permissionless innovation allows that. And it encourages us to first think about how we can make the world a better place through bold experiments. I love the quote from Wilbur Wright. He and his brother, of course, pioneered human flight. And he was once asked about the dangers of what he was doing, the risk-taking that he and his brother were engaged in to try to get off the ground. And Wilbur Wright said, quote, if you are looking for perfect safety, you would do well to sit on a fence and watch the birds. Of course, Wilbur and his brother did not sit on the fence. They got off the fence and they took risks. They understood the key fact, which is that there can be no reward without a certain amount of risk-taking. And so we should utilize that logic as the basis of public policy. We should consider the right default for innovation to generally be permissionless innovation and only resort to the precautionary principle in the handful of cases where the risks are so overwhelming 
that we just can't allow for trial and error. And there certainly are some examples I'm happy to get into in our further discussions. But I think that for the most part, most innovations should be allowed preemptively. It should be treated as innocent until proven guilty. And then we'll deal with the problems as they come at us, because that's what we humans are very good at doing. Innocent until proven guilty, more green lights than red ones. I think those are the ones we'll pick up on the next episode. Thank you, Adam Tira, for being our guest. Thank you so much for having me.